comes to share with us tonight. Thank you, sir. Good evening, church. Great to be back. What a good day. It was nice and restful and wonderful fellowship. Good time and uh, good food and good naps. And It's a Saturday. That's what Saturdays are good for sometimes. But wonderful to be back and to share again with you. Thank you for the music and the leading us in worship and, and uh, setting an atmosphere where we can concentrate on Jesus and enjoy time together. I'm excited tonight to evangelize the evangelized to uh, talk to people who know Christ about our Christ. It's what unifies us. A lot of things divide us in the world. A lot of things separate us. A lot of things cause us to move into camps and be us and them and the others and whatever. But in this house, we are unified around the idea, and it is an idea that we have placed our faith in and then that moved and matured from an idea to a reality to us, and that is that Christ is alive. We believe it. We live for a risen Christ, and that's what unifies us. Lots of disagreements in the world and, frankly, a lot in the church, but we maybe should sometimes just go back to the thing we agree in. Jesus is alive. And if we could start there and then try to live there as much as possible, what would that do to our, to our world? And so that's what I want to talk about. Um, no matter what I talk about, I talk about a living Jesus. Because to me, you can't, there's nothing to preach if you don't think Jesus is really alive, and not just in the cosmos, but inside of us. And because he's alive inside of us, I think we can even take some instruction once in a while. We can even hear what maybe we should do once in a while. So last night, I talked about do the truth. I took that from John 3, where Jesus said, whoever doeth or whoever does the truth then walks out of the darkness into the light. That was a do sermon. Do the truth. Let me give you a don't sermon tonight, all right? So if we start with a do... We advance to a don't. I found that you can't start in a lot of churches with a don't because people won't listen. <laughs> Got to start with a do. You can work your way to a don't. Then it'll be a little bit easier to kind of walk into. This one is <laughs> a, little bit, a, a little bit of a hinky title. I'll meet you in Matthew 20, and I want to give you uh, a moment to get to the first, the first book of the New Testament, and I'm going to read for you most of, if not all of, my, one of my favorite parables in the New Testament. And I want to title this tonight, Don't Be a Buster. Um, and by buster, that you, I don't mean um, someone who knocks things over or busts things up, but I mean it sort of in the classic word for buster. And I'll tell you why I'm using that in just a moment. No, there is no... There is no word in the English that translates directly to buster in the Greek. Um, but I do want to present that we actually get pretty close. And before we read any, let me set that up with this. Because that title is all you'll think about anyway. You keep waiting on buster to show up in this message. So let's go ahead and deal with him, all right? Um, the word friend in the New Testament is almost always translated from the Greek word philos. Um, and there's a fondness inside of that word where we get the, the city of one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia, which is city of brotherly love. There is a love and an affection that is in that Greek phrase, 
Phileo, Philos, Philadelphia. Anytime you have, have that pretext or that uh, root, you're dealing with an affection. And that's why the English translators take the Greek word philos and often translate it into the word friend because oftentimes, like for instance, when Jesus says, I call you friend, well, that's a great moment of affection. That's where the Lord Jesus is looking at his disciples and then we see him looking at us as we should and he's saying, you're not just my servants, you're not my slaves, you're my friends. You and I are on intimate relations because you share with your friend what you don't share with your enemy. You share with your friend what you don't share with a stranger. And so a friend is a little closer to the inner circle. They might not be all the way to family, which is really tight, moms, dads, husbands, wives, kids, brothers, sisters. But they're on that next circle at least. They're friends. And, and you realize that friends can be so close, they actually sort of take the place of family sometimes. They, you get closer to a friend than you do your own sibling or your own parent. There's nothing unnatural about that. That's human affection. That's because people begin to fill holes in our lives of things we've lost or they begin to replace things that we've left behind because it's a different season in our lives. It's why we don't hold on to the same friends in adulthood that we had in childhood. We have a few of them, but you know the dynamics of your friendships change. Sometimes the friends that you had in childhood were friends because they rode your bus and they lived on your street and they got put on your little league team. And then you were friends till like you were 18 and you couldn't wait to get rid of some of them because you were like, I don't know how we ended up being friends in the first place. Third grade isn't a good place for me to make lifelong friends. That's just kids I play on the monkey bars with. Then you start choosing your friends and then your friends choose you and then they sort of come and go. And the Bible has that as a, a word that is used for sort of moving into an intimacy with Jesus. That we've gone past legalism, we've gone past the law, we've gone past performance. I'm not just trying to get to heaven. I'm not trying to get God to love me. I realize he loves me. I realize I'm forgiven. I realize I'm a son. He calls me friend. What have we done? We've moved from enemies to strangers, from strangers to friends. We're getting closer and closer to the heart of God. In my opinion, that's Christian growth. There is such thing as Christian growth. It's sort of growing into the realization that I'm tight with him. I'm on intimate terms with him. We're buddies. We are friends. He can call me his friend. And then Matthew unique among the four Gospels, takes another Greek word and uses it, and the translators didn't really know what to do with it. And so it ends up three times. Matthew's the only writer in the New Testament, by the way, that ever uses this word. But Matthew ends up using it three times in his Gospel, and it's a word that the English translators translate as friend. Let me show you this first one, and then we'll read the story in a moment. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, and I know I've given you no context for this verse, but that will not be what we will do with this verse. That's just to set the stage, okay? We'll give you context. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 20. But he answered, he being Jesus, or he being the master of the vineyard, he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You've probably already figured out that this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And we're going to walk through this parable in a moment. But nutshell version of the parable of, of the vineyard, uh, workers in the vineyard is they agree to work for a day's worth of pay. And they get to the end of the day and it's paycheck time. And they're not happy with what everybody gets paid. We'll start there. And so they come to the master, they come to the, the, the Lord of the vineyard, and they say, this isn't fair, we don't like this. And the master says, friend, reread it again in verse 13, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. 
did you not agree with me for a denarius? And Matthew uses the word here, he does not use the word philos, because philos is that friend of affection. That's an intimacy. That's someone of whom you have spent time with, you've went down the road with, you've made a relationship, classically the word we would use for friend. But they didn't know what to do. When the translators got a hold of the Greek word heteros, they didn't really know how to handle it because heteros is a comrade, but there is no affection in heteros in the Greek. It is an acquaintance that you might call a friend that does not hold the intimacy of a friend. So I tried to get to the bottom of what does heteros really sound like. The translators didn't know what to do with it. So they called it friend, although heteros and philos should never be in the same camp because a philos is somebody you love, somebody you want to be around, somebody you're happy about, somebody you've built a relationship with. A heteros is not someone that you've built a relationship with. Maybe we would call him a fringe friend. Maybe we call him an acquaintance. I read a, a Greek scholar that, called, that said the best thing I can come up with is this would be hey, buster. Listen up. And the moment I read that, I went, well, there we go. Three points, a poem, and a song, and an illustration. You got yourself a sermon because Matthew three times uses the Greek word for buster. We're going to just call it the Greek word for buster. And I told you up front, there's not a true Greek word for buster, but this is also not the Greek word for friend. So I'm on okay ground. I mean, they're not giving me the right word, so we're going to make one up for ourselves. I like hey, pal, myself once in a while. I like, what's a hey, pal? Watch it. Because if you say hey, pal to somebody, that's not what you say to your friend. That's what you say to a guy that's stepped a little too close. That's what you say to a guy who's trying to push a little too close into the intimate circle. And you go, hey, pal, take a step back. Hey, Buster, listen up. So I do find it a little bit amusing that Matthew, alone of all of the New Testament writers, decides to drop the word heteros in. And interestingly enough, he does it three times. And if you've ever been into a homiletics, a hermeneutics, an exegesis class, um, you probably learned three points is a pretty good way to preach a sermon. I'm stunned. I've lived 45 years, and I've never heard anyone preach on Buster, even though he shows up three times in the book of Matthew. So tonight, tonight's the night that we are, don't be a buster. And I say it, of course, tongue-in-cheek and humorously, the reality is, is that I don't think you're a buster. I think you're a philos. I think you are an intimate friend with him. And I don't think he's going to call you a buster. But I know me. And I know my father loves me. And I know I'm one of the sons. But I know that my attitude sometimes has my dad go, hey, buster, watch it back there. Because I know my earthly father loves me immensely loved me and loves me immensely, calls me son proudly. But I know there were moments in my life where my dad would say something the equivalent of, hey, Buster, you better watch yourself. And it didn't mean my dad loved me any less. It meant that in that moment, you know what I was being? Buster. And I don't know what Buster is, but I know it wasn't the right dude in the moment when dad said, hey, Buster, watch out. And so I find it a little interesting that Buster rears his head. Let's read the story, shall we? Matthew chapter 20, and I want to start in verse 1, and I know you know it, but I want to just slow read through it, and here's what I will promise you. We will not spend an equal amount of reading time on all three busters, so don't freak out, all right? Because I know sometimes I tend to take that first buster real slow and try to set him up. We'll get to those last two, and I think by then you'll kind of feel the flow of what might be happening in these stories. But here's the, one of my favorite parables because um, I see it as such an amazing parable of grace. 
And uh, I'll talk about how I used to translate it, and I'll talk about what the Holy Spirit's doing in me now. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, the word denarius, don't worry about dollar amount. Denarius was what you made for a whole day's wages in the Roman Empire. So adjust it for inflation or adjust it for your lifestyle. I'm not going to give you a dollar amount, but what would be to you worth an entire day of physical labor in the field? That's what they've agreed to work for. So he shows up in the morning time to, to hire, let's just call it a truck, and I know, no trucks, but just go with me on the story, okay? He shows up early in the morning to hire a truck full of day laborers, and he tells all of them, I'm going to pay you a fair day's wages for your work. They jump in the truck, they go out into the field, and about the third hour, verse 3, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. Notice he doesn't say how much, he says whatever is right. I want you to notice this, maybe even underline it if you got a hard copy. Whatever's right. Who determines what is right? It's the guy that writes the check. You agreed, right? Jump in the truck. You want to do what's right? You want the, what, I'll pay you what's right. You agree? Sure, I agree. Okay, jump in the truck. Let's go. I'll pay you what's right. They went. And again about the sixth, and again about the ninth, and he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. All right, let's just pause for a moment. Make sure we realize that at 6 a.m. he went into town, and he filled his truck full of day laborers, and he said, I'll pay you one day's worth wages. You work all day long. Does everyone agree? Everyone raise their hand. If you agree, get in the truck. They get in the truck. He drives them to the vineyard. He puts them out in the vineyard, and they all work all day. He goes back to town about 9 a.m. He fills his truck again. He goes, I'll pay what's right. He doesn't say what right is, but he says, I'll pay you what's right. Everybody agree? Who agrees? Raise your hand. Get in the truck. He comes back. He does it again at noon, right around lunchtime. He comes back. He does it again right around 3 p.m. He comes back and does it again at 5. The work whistle blows at 6. So at 5, he loads his last. There's only a few stragglers left. There's nobody that's really been there all day long. But he's hired every single person that shows up no matter what time they get up. Some of them were not there with the morning bell. Some of them were too lazy to get out of bed. Some of them don't like to get out of bed till 1130, and then they, they sleep till noon, and then they come into town. And some of them just want to work in the afternoon, and frankly, some of them just want to work about an hour because all they really want is cigarettes and beer, and they don't really need to pay rent. They just need a little bit. And so they go, well, just show up at 5, see if somebody wants you to sweep their porch. We get a little bit of that money, we'll be all right no matter what everybody's included in the story that's what this that's what I love about this story is you got your early risers and you got your lazy dudes and you got your bums and you got your hangers on you got your guys that aren't good workers you got your guys that are good workers and you got only one group agrees to a set amount everybody else agrees to what's right right early group you get a whole day's wages the rest of you get what's right now if you get a job and start at five o'clock in the afternoon and you get off at six and you knew you were going to get what's right what do you expect? Okay, so take what you, whatever number you put in your head earlier when I told you to put your own number for what it's worth and divide it down to, split it in 12s and take one of those. That's one hour's worth, right? Okay, so that seems to be what's right. So if you started work at three, split it down and multiply that by three and you know how to do basic math. Go ahead and do the math in your head on what is right. And if you're sitting in this room doing that, I promise you everyone in that truck in that field is doing exactly that. 
They're dividing up what it is that they think they deserve and what it is that they think they will get paid. Verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages and begin with the last to the first. So we're going to pay them in reverse order. Call everyone forward that got hired at five, put them in a line, and behind them put all the three o'clock workers, and then behind them put the noon workers, and behind them put the 9 a.m. workers, and then put the 6 a.m. workers. Let's line them up single file and pay all of them. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a full day's wages. That's a denarius. Now, let's make sure we understand what just happened. The 5 p.m. workers get paid first, and in their pay envelope, when they open it up, it's an entire day's wages. Whatever number you put in your head earlier that you said you would take for an entire day's worth of physical labor, they got it for 60 minutes of work. Now you're standing at the back of the line. Remember, you were the first person to raise your hand this morning at 6 a.m. that you wanted to go to work for a whole day's wages. And you've been watching all day long as these guys work less than you are. You're under the hot sun all day, sweating and back breaking and doing what you agreed you would do it for. And no one in there is talking about what they're going to get paid. But you start to watch them get paid what you got paid. And your heart does a little flip-flop. It does a little flutter because maybe some things have changed. He gave them exactly what I agreed to work for for an entire day, and they only worked an hour. I bet that it's going to get even better as it gets to us. I love how Jesus tells the story. In verse 9, those who came were hired the 11th hour. They each received a denarius. When the first came, they supposed they would receive more, and they likewise received. He skipped the 3 o'clock workers, the noon workers, the 9 a.m. workers, and jumped all the way to the 6 a.m. workers because Jesus is trying to make a point. He's not just being dramatic. If he were being dramatic, he'd walk through everybody getting their pay stubs. But he, do, he isn't. He's not trying to tell you a true story. He's trying to tell you a real story. How many of you know there's a difference in a true story and a real story? A true story happened on the timeline of humanity. A real story keeps happening on the timeline of humanity. There's a difference. How many of you know this Bible is full of real stories? Don't worry about if they're true stories. Understand that they're real stories. They happen often over and over again. So I don't know if Matthew 20 is a true story, but I'm really sure it's a real story because Jesus jumps right to the heart of it. That's what you do with real stories. You go right to the drama, and he jumps right to the worker that agreed for a whole day's wages if he started in the morning. And when they get to the front of the line... They supposed they would get more. Now, I want to ask you, why did they think they would get more? This is a good moment of good introspection for every Bible student. We all realize in this verse that thinking they would receive more is natural. Why do we think that? They were what? They were glunkered. Gotcha. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah. Okay, they, were, they worked longer, okay. But why do we think that they would expect to get more when they agreed for exactly what they got? Because fairness. Because they believed in a world of fairness. If you work the whole day, you get paid for the whole day. If you don't work the whole day, you don't get Paid for the whole day. That's fair. This is how the economy is supposed to work, they go. We agreed to work for the whole day. We expect to get paid for the whole day. I'm fine with that, but I just watched you pay that guy exactly what you're paying me. 
So I expect more. Why do you expect more? We had an agreement that you were going to work for this amount. You worked for this amount. I'm not ripping you off. I told you what I'd pay you. You said, yeah, we had a handshake deal. You raised your hand, jumped in the truck. You worked all day. Here's exactly what I promised you. What's the problem? I think I should deserve more because this verse shows us that inherently, deep down inside of us is a sense of performance-based fairness. If people do good, they should get more. If they do bad, they should get less. If they do poorly, they should be cursed. And that is so inherent in us that even in light of doing the right thing, which is the contract you signed to work for, we still think that it's unfair. Even though we signed up for it, it's unfair. Why? Because it's not fair that I did this and got this and they did that and got what I got. We need an equitable system where we all get the same thing. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner. And they said, verse 12, these men worked one hour and you made them equal to us who borne the burden and the heat of the day. And he answered one of them and said, Heteros, I didn't do you wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Friend. But man, it ain't no... I don't call you servants, I call you friends. So what is it? You said that we were going to make this much, but we watched these guys who only worked one hour get what's equal to us. We're the ones that bore the burden. We're the ones that bore the heat of the day. We worked harder. We deserve to get more. And the master's response is, Buster, I didn't do anything wrong. Listen up, Buster. I didn't do you wrong. I gave you exactly what I promised to give you. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The real money is right here in 14 and 15. 14, take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Okay, let's pause right there for a moment. Take what's yours and get out. Take what's yours and go live your life. I gave you exactly what you signed up for. Take what's yours and go live your life. Stop worrying about the 11th hour guy and go live your own life. The reason I think don't be a buster is appropriate here is because when we get in a mode of trying to judge who gets grace, who gets favor, and how much they get, our self-righteous performance always rears its ugly head, and we go from what should be an affectionate friend to a buster about like that. And don't live in an environment, don't put yourself and allow yourself to be in an environment where you try to be equitable with grace, take what's yours and go live your life. And don't tell God who he gets to pay, and who he gets to love, and how much he gets to shower on people. Take what's yours. Go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Watch this in 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? And I'll deal with that last one in a second. That first part. Don't I get to do what I want with my own money? Now we of course say, yeah, a boss gets to do whatever he wants with his own money. He goes, I want to pay everyone what I want to pay everyone. I don't want to pay them what they've earned. I want to pay them what I'm worth, what I'm worth. And I want to give it to them, not what they're worth. I want to give to them what I'm worth. 
Because I don't give to you based on what you do. I give to you based on how good I am. Listen, that's God speaking to you. I do not give to you based on how good you are. I give to you based on how good I am. God's grace is not a gift because you've been good. God's grace is a gift because God is good. Is your eye evil because I'm good? That's an old phrase from the old covenant. Because in the old covenant, the Bible tells us that, and there's a lot of phrases in the old world for evil eye, a lot of which are not biblical. There was an old phrase for evil eyes, and when you looked at someone with an evil eye, you could put a curse on them. But in the, in the Torah, the evil eye was the guy that would look upon the poor and not be generous to them. The Old Testament called that a man with an evil eye. And, the, and it's interesting that Jesus uses that in this story. He says, have you become one of those people who look upon everyone else and judge what they receive? Don't be that guy. Don't be a buster. Don't be, don't be that guy that cannot allow grace to go do what grace will do. You say, okay, let me, I told you a moment ago that I really want to tell you how I've handled this in my own life. For a long time in this parable, I, I, I liked this parable because... I thought it was just simply a parable of grace and that what it was trying to say to me is, is that God is a good God and God is unfairly good in that he will let everybody who receives him have the exact same heaven even if they receive him on their deathbed. That's how I preach this. I would say, so for those of you who, like me, gave your heart to Jesus at six, and I'd go around the room and go, how many of you gave your heart to Jesus in Sunday school? And you didn't raise their hand. How many of you gave your heart to Jesus at VBS? And raise their hand. How many of you gave your heart to Jesus when you was a teenager? How many of you got saved in college? You go around the room, and you get to the end, and go, and now this guy right over here is a new convert. He's not been saved a week. And you go, the grace of God is exactly the same on all of us that got saved in VBS as it is on this guy right over here that's been saved a week. And that, you know what? That's right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that message that's exactly right God doesn't tear off the amount of his grace and go ah only been saved a week you got to earn some you got to grow up a little bit no that's us that's not God and so if that's all we had from this parable we would have a truth but we might not necessarily have what is real or relevant to all of us readers now you might see yourself as the 11th hour guy you haven't been saved very long thank God you get grace you might see yourself as the noon guy, the 9 a.m. guy, the 3 p.m. guy, the 6 a.m. guy. It doesn't really matter which person you think that you are in the story. I just don't believe anymore this is simply a parable about God's grace being equal for those who get in barely as for those who get in all day long. I think this is a parable of God's joy at doing what he wants with what is his and how all of us seem to have a problem with that. Let me say that again. This is a parable of God's joy at doing what he wants with what is his, and all of us seem to have a problem with that. And you say, I don't have a problem with that, but I think we do have a problem with that every time we demand an equitable and fair outcome in a world in which we are bragging about God's grace, which is not equitable or fair, and we demand an equitable or fair outcome in every dimension, we show ourselves to be ones who demand that things be fair and equal. But I think this is a parable that God has great joy and that God is ready to spread that joy. And while we are his children and we are his friends, every, time, every now and then, like me in the back seat of the car getting in a fight with my brother as a kid, even though I knew I was my dad's son, he would turn around to say to me, Buster, pull it in. I think, and pull it in meant stop it. 
that was what pulled it in, man. That was just my dad. I don't know. I, I always imagined it was a car. You were backing into a garage. I don't know, but he's a buster, pull it in. Buster, don't try to take my joy, God says. It's my joy. I get, to, I get to pour my favor out on whoever I want to. Don't be a buster. Don't be someone who tries to police God's grace. Don't be someone who tries to steal the joy of God's glorious grace. Let's imagine for a moment as we read, I don't want to reread this story, but I want to imagine, put yourself in every one of the time slots. Imagine that your envelope is full at the end of the payday with the denarius. Imagine the excitement at being the five o'clock worker and looking into that envelope and you made an entire day's worth of pay and you know you didn't earn it. You'd almost feel like you stole it. But would you go to the head paymaster and hand it back? No, and let me tell you why you wouldn't. Because remember what you raised your hand to back in the marketplace and before you jumped in the truck? What was the last thing he said to you before you raised your hand and volunteered to work? He said, I'll pay you what's right. You had no idea how much you were getting. You just opened the envelope and went, whoa, I like this guy's definition of right. You didn't go ask the 6 a.m. workers how much they were making because that wasn't part of the deal. You were just receiving what's right. Let me ask you, what's right for God to do? What's right for God to do with people in this world? What's right for God to do with his own grace? I'll be honest with you. This parable teaches me that I don't know the answer to that question. This parable teaches me that I can't tell God what's right. That's just not right for you to be that loving. That's not right for you to be that forgiving. That's not right. That's not fair. Because when I say that's not fair, I don't reveal what I think is wrong with God. I reveal what is wrong with me. I reveal that it's me who has an issue with you. Not an issue with God. It's an issue with you because I don't think you've worked hard enough to receive what I've received or to get what I have got. I'm glad I don't get to determine what is right in the eyes of God. God gets to determine what is right. I also think that it's fascinating that they were peering into everybody else's pay envelope. How do they know what everybody was getting paid? And they're the only ones of the day that seem to have this problem. The, six, the five o'clock guys don't peer into the three o'clock guys' pay slip. They don't peer into the noon pay slips or the 9 a.m. But the 6 a.m. guys are peering into the 5 p.m.s because when they agreed to work for a day's wage, they didn't agree to work for what was right. They agreed to work for a day's wage. And a lot of us came into a Christianity believing we were working for our day's wage. This is my ticket out of hell. This is how to get to heaven. This is what God owes me for receiving his son Jesus. And then we watch people come in under what they, they say God brings them in under what's right. And that doesn't sound like the same thing as a full day's pay. And if you live your Christianity trying to receive your favor because it's a good full day's pay, you'll always be on the wrong end of this parable. So don't go asking God for your blessings because you fasted. Don't go asking God for your favor because you've tithed. Don't go asking God for your anointing because you've been in church. That's asking for what you think is fair. You don't realize you're not capable of paying for as much as you're taking. 
You're just not. Because if God started running it fair, we would all be in trouble. God would go, wait a minute, buster. You think you've actually paid me for as good as you've got it? Oh, let's open the books. But you serve a God that's not a bookkeeper. Who doesn't keep your accounts against you. That's not fair. You ought to be keeping accounts against me. You ought to be keeping accounts for me. But you have a God who says he took what was contrary to you and took it out of your way and nailed it to his cross. And God in Christ reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Do you know that word counting in the Greek is an accounting term? God refused to open the accountant's ledger and give you what you deserved. God slammed his book and said, we're going to run this show unfairly. I'm going to do what I think's right, not what they think is right. And I think we will be way more judgmental on us than the Father will. I think we will be harsher, colder, more distant. Because even though he wants to call us philos, friend, every now and then to get our attention, he has to call us heteros, Hey, Buster, you don't want what you think it is. you want. It's not what you think it is. Don't be a buster. This isn't the only one. There's a couple more. The second time, and again, I'm going to remind you that they're all Matthew, which I want to give you a quick 30 seconds, and then I'll turn into five minutes because I know me. A quick 30 seconds on why I think that is unique to Matthew because Matthew is writing his gospel to Israel almost without a doubt from the way he opens to the way he closes. He's writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience about events that will happen at the end of their age. But he's also writing beyond the Jewish audience because what good is it for you to read a letter to a Jewish audience from a long, long time ago unless it's more real than true? True matters, but real really matters. Because when it becomes real, then you might as well be reading Matthew because even though he wasn't talking to you, he's talking to you. That's why we can say that in the church. Oh, he's not talking to you, but guess who he's talking to? You. But my name's not in there. doesn't have to be. It's real, so he's talking to you. So Matthew's talking to the Jews, and his stories are framed around it. It's why his is the most complete eschatological end-of-days prophetic book because Matthew's talking to a people who are standing at the end of the Mosaic economy. They're watching this, what's going to be this crossover into this new covenant, and so a lot of the stories are very focused and very laser-focused on trying to tell that environment about those things that are to come. And interestingly enough, because Matthew's been influenced by, the, by pre-cross Jesus and changed by resurrected Jesus, Matthew was one of his disciples, and Matthew's at the day of Pentecost and receives the Holy Spirit and has an entire transformation, Matthew loses his patience with what he came from. And remember, what he came from was a world that judged him every day anyway because he was a tax collector. And in the world of Judaism in the first century, a tax collector was about like a pedophile. And so they didn't have much use for Matthew. And now Matthew, following the resurrected Christ, looks back on his peers and drops in Buster. And I think it's why it's Matthew's word. I think Matthew finds himself talking to his old peers a lot going, you, hey, pal, <laughs> straighten it up. 
And, and so the language of Jesus in Matthew seems steered towards that. And so don't be surprised that as you get closer to the cross, Matthew drops it in again. Because as he's watching his own countrymen turn on what he considers the savior of the world, the Messiah, he's warning us, don't be that. Be a friend of God. Don't be buster. Don't be the friend with no affection. Don't be the one who is distanced from God. And so he uses it again in Matthew chapter 22. In verse 11, and I'll, I'll tell you the wedding feast parable in a moment, but I want to read for you a couple of verses first. When the king came in to see his wedding guests, he saw a man standing there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Buster, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. I just went ahead that time, skip the English, skip the Greek, just jump straight to Buster because we're already on the same page, right? This is point two. Wait till we get to number three. Just Buster out of the gate. Um, so the story of the wedding feast goes a little bit as follows. Man throws a great wedding party for his son and he sends out servants to invite everyone to come in and they won't because they've got a bunch of stuff to do. And there's this terrible slaughter judgment verse that drops down in here where he goes out and mows a bunch of people down and there's a judgment aspect to the parable and that's why I told you that aspect of eschatology because I think that old system that Matthew's looking in on from the outside is about to come down and that system coming down is coming down in that era to the to the Jews assembled in those texts and so as the story unfolds the king who is furious is now has his feelings hurt and he throws the wedding again and they, he sends them out into the highways and out into the hedges and out into the byways to fill up his wedding hall and look at verse 10 his servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now I want you for a moment to imagine a wedding feast in which you had to go out because you couldn't get the people you invited. You had to go out and get the dregs of society. You had to go clean out the ghetto and the gutter and the alleyways. And you had to bring in not the good that was left over in town, but you brought in both the bad and the good. This to me is one of the more unheralded evangelical verses in the entire Bible. And the reason I say that it's unheralded, it's obviously evangelical. The servants go out and try to bring people into the party. What in the world is this if not us hoping people come to the party? Right? Okay. If we're hoping people come to the party, let's get some high quality people. Shall we? Let's get some good citizens. Let's get some upright Christians. Let's get some people that live right. Let's get some people with good morals. Let's make this place look good. Let's populate heaven with high quality people. Now you say no one ever preaches that. No, but that sure is how we try to build churches. It sure is how we try to build ministries. And yet this is one of the most remarkable evangelical verses that hardly ever gets preached in which the party gets filled with both bad and good. And it doesn't really seem like the master of the house gives a rip one way or the other. If the citizens are bad or good, he just wants them in the party. Because if you're throwing a party and it's, you've already ordered the food and you've already paid the caterer and you've already paid the, the valets and you've already rented the venue, you want to fill every table, bad or good. And it's remarkable that evangelism ignores the fact that God is bringing in both the bad and the good, I don't just mean he's saving the bad and he's saving the good. I mean his wedding hall is 
They don't just bring them in as bad and as good. They go gather in and fill it with the bad and the good. There are people in the wedding hall who are bad, and there are people in the wedding hall who are good. Amazing. Who put them in there? The master of the house. And he walks into the party, and everybody in the party has been given wedding garments. And wedding garments means that you have received the wedding covenant. And he finds a man in the party without a wedding garment on, and he walks over to that guest that doesn't have a wedding garment in verse 12, says, Buster, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the next line is the key to the story because it says, He was speechless, and so the man has no response at all. And so the king says to him, bind him hand, foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what might Jesus be saying in this parable? The good and the bad get invited to the party because God wants to populate his party. The man got into the party. We don't know if he was good or bad. Let's assume he was good. I know you assumed he was bad because he didn't have a wedding garment on. But let's assume. Let's assume he's good. Assume he's good, assume he's bad. The issue is not how moral he is. The issue is not how prayerful he is. The issue is not how faithful he is. The issue is when he's presented with the covenant garment, with the garment that marks him in robes of righteousness, he's speechless. He has no answer to the love, the affection, and the invitation of God. And no answer binds him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what we've done is read this as a cosmic hell somewhere, but Jesus doesn't tell the parable as if they send him to spiritual hell. He says they send him out of the party bound up in hand and foot, and he weeps as they're throwing him out of the party. And why in the world is this in the story? Because you accept his invitation to covenant And the end result of not accepting his invitation is the darkness of the person who lives outside of that covenant. You can talk about that being an eternal hell all you want and I'll not fight you. I don't need to wait till eternity to see people living in a hell where they're in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That all came as a result of not accepting his robes of righteousness. His party favors. It's his party. And I think that when you get put into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, anywhere where you're bound hand and foot sounds a whole lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to me. Bound hand and foot and thrown into a fiery furnace. Now I'm going to say something right here that gets me, that can get me in trouble. I'm giving you a heads up. I think if you get bound hand and foot into the fiery furnace, go in there looking for Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar said, how many did we throw in there? And they said, we threw in three. He said, how many's in there now? Four. He goes, the fourth one looks like the son of God. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out, what was not on them anymore? The bindings on their hands and their feet. If you go into the fire, look for Jesus. You go, what's that mean for eternity? I don't know. I haven't been to eternity. But what I do know is I've went into the fire. I've went into the fire of my own silence, of rejecting his party favors. I've walked into my own hell of not receiving his goodness, of him walking up to me and saying, Paul, do you want this? And I'm mute. And he goes, you're bringing hell on yourself, son. Buster, 
Buster, what are you doing? Don't be a Buster. Get in a party and have some fun. You want to know who I think was another Buster? Luke just didn't have Matthew's flair for language. I think the elder brother was another Buster. I think the father comes out to the elder brother and goes, hey, Buster, what are you doing out here in the yard? we got a party going on in the house. Because his whole speech is Matthew 20. That ain't fair. My, my brother has wasted his substance on whores, and he's, you know, he, he, you got the fatted calf never even gave me a goat. Why, why are we not having a party for me? You don't think the older brother was already in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? The very fact that he opened his mouth and said what he said is his weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is his darkness. All he had to do was accept the robe the father wanted to put over his shoulders. That's all he asks in the party is wear my clothes. When you get in here, it's my party. If I ask you to put on a party hat, put on a party hat. I hand out punch, just drink some. It's my party. You're at my party. You want my stuff? It's my party. Just accept. You know what part of his party is? Good and bad people are in there. We walk in there and go, I don't know about this. I don't agree with some of these people in here. And God goes, that's weeping and gnashing of teeth, man. Buster, straighten it up. It's my party. It ain't your party. You don't get to tell me who gets to come to my party and what I get to do at my party. How about one more Buster? Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Buster, what are you doing here? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. There's Matthew's word. This is the final time he uses it. Now, this one could be really simple if we wanted it to be. How could we close this message? Don't be the buster that betrays Jesus with your actions. Really, this is low-hanging fruit, all right? This one ain't even trying. This is you didn't want to work on the eggs of Jesus long. You just liked the three points. You get to the third point, you go, don't go betray Jesus with your sin this week. Don't go betray Jesus with your lifestyle this week. Don't go betray Jesus with your actions this week. Okay. That's probably worth a buster. I mean, that'd probably be worth a buster like, hey, you can do better than that. But this is the worst of the busters, in my opinion. And those first two busters need, need to straighten it up, need to pull it in. Pull it in, buster. I think Judas is an example of so many times that we badly want Jesus to line up with the Jesus we want him to be rather than the Jesus that we see revealed. Judas, I don't think, betrays Jesus because he's hateful. I don't think Judas betrays Jesus because he wants Jesus to die because he's been masterminding some plot in the background of the scene and the darkness going, ah, my moment's coming. I don't think this at all. Judas was so close to Jesus, he handled the money. And in the rabbinical world, the man that handled the money was most often the closest to the leader. Betrayal doesn't mean anything if it's an outsider that betrays you. It means something if it's your best friend. 
I actually think Judas was on the inner circle. I know he, we go, well, but he wasn't up there with Peter, James, and John. He go, I understand that. There was, a, there was a theological reason for the Peter, James, and John inner circle. But I think Judas might have been the one who was the friend of Jesus, who was, who was the philos, who was the affectionate buddy. Close enough that Jesus entrusted him with the money. Close enough that they had an unspoken relationship, the kind you have with your spouse where you can just look at them and they know a thousand words happen in a glance. Jesus had that so much that he could glance at Judas on the night of the Last Supper and Judas just takes the money bag and goes and buys bread and everybody at the table thinks that they've had an unspoken moment because apparently they have those all the time. Because the Bible says, and they thought that he had told him to go buy bread, even though he didn't tell him to go buy bread. Where'd they get that idea? Judas and Jesus had that thing where Judas, Jesus could look at him and Judas could look at him, and he knew. And I think, based upon the response that Judas had when the 30 pieces of silver were used to betray Jesus, to put him on a cross and kill him, Judas comes back into the temple with the 30 pieces of silver and throws it in the floor and says, I didn't know you were going to do this to him, and then runs out and, of course, hangs himself out of his own guilt. But I think the evidence that he brings the 30 pieces of silver back in is that what they did to Jesus was not what Judas was selling the 30 pieces for them to do to Jesus. And I believe the actions in the Garden of Gethsemane just in front of the buster, why are you here, lets us know what was going on. Judas walks into the garden with men with swords and spears to arrest Jesus, and I believe it's because Judas was waiting for Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that would pick up the sword and lead a revolution against Rome. He thought what Messiah they were looking for was going to overthrow Caesar. And Jesus, you got it all, man. You, you know the stuff. You, you can argue with all those highfalutin Pharisees. You got it all, man. People follow you to the ends of the earth. You can walk on the water and you, and you turn water to wine and you raise the dead. You're the one. We'll die for you, Jesus. But you just won't get it. Every time they want to make you king, you turn them away with some sermon about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. And every time we come close to getting what we need to get, you run. You run and hide in Samaria for a week or you don't show up at the, at the feast day on time or whenever you're in the middle of the moment, you step off to the side. But I, want, I think that if we could just squeeze you in a moment where the real you had to show up, I know you got it in you, Jesus. I know you got it in you. You're the one I'm waiting for. So I heard that you're showing up tonight in Gethsemane and you already told your disciples to bring two swords. I heard you say it. Bring two swords. I know this is the night. So what I'll do is make it easy for you. I'll bring to you a group of soldiers with swords and spears drawn and you show them. Tonight's the night we make it happen. And when Judas walks in with swords and spears drawn... Jesus grabs him and kisses him. Judas kisses him and Jesus kisses his cheek and says, Buster, what are you doing here? This is the pause. If this were a movie, this is where the screen goes in slow-mo for a second. And you watch someone reach down and grab the handle of their sword. And this melee breaks out in slow motion around Jesus and Judas. Jesus with his arm around Judas going, Buster, what are you doing? And then the scene speeds up where things go fast like a car wreck, where stuff happens really quickly and you don't realize it. Some of that happens in slow motion in the moment, and then only later it's like, gosh, it was over so fast. I don't know what happened. 
And what happens is as the disciples see those swords and remember Jesus telling them to take a sword, Peter pulls the sword out and comes rushing in behind Jesus and slashes the ear off of Malchus's servant. And there's blood flying and punches are flying and people are on the ground and there's knees on backs and there's Jesus standing with his arm around Judas saying, Buster, what are you doing here? And Jesus turns to his group, and rather than picking up a sword, he grabs Peter's sword midair. I think right before Peter goes ahead and kills Malchus's servant, who's probably on the ground. That's the posture you take when you get an appendage sliced off in the middle of the fight. And Peter's just about to thrust the sword through Malchus's servant when Jesus grabs his arm and says, Put your sword up. Permit even this. If you live by this sword, you'll die by this sword. This sword will be your death, not just his death. Put it away. You might say, well, then why did Jesus ever give them swords in the first place? Because the book of Isaiah said that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. And to be numbered with the transgressors, they had to be declared to be insurrectionists. And there was a law on the book in the first century in Jerusalem that a group of men carrying two or more swords were an armed insurrection against the government. And by being arrested in Gethsemane with a group carrying two swords, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, exactly like Isaiah said that he had to be. But you want to know the real reason why he carried it? That's the theological reason why he carried it. The real reason why he carried it is because you don't know how to keep a sword sheathed if you don't carry one. And he wants to teach you how to keep the sword sheathed. I don't mean we need to be carrying a gun. I don't need to be, mean we need to be carrying a knife. I mean we don't know what we are until we're in the middle of the fight. That's why a lot of us go, I've never done this, bless God, but you never had the opportunity. I never committed adultery, but you never had the chance. I never murdered, but you were never in that situation where murder got you out of the situation. Not deeper in, but got you out. It's easy to say, I've never, until you're in that moment. It's in that moment at Gethsemane when, put the sword away. You live by it, you'll die by it. And by the way, I don't think Jesus has changed his mind. This is why I think this is the biggest buster of them all. You came in here expecting that I would be a Jesus that picks up the sword to all of the sudden, at the end of my ministry, turn violent. All of a sudden, at the end of my ministry, kick out the Sermon on the Mount. Man strikes you on the cheek. Don't turn the other one. Pull your sword and slit his throat because that will keep him from ever striking you again. Don't be a buster. Don't be a buster in this moment and think that you can create a Jesus that lives up to your expectations and your standards of what you think ought to happen on the earth. Instead, go investigate how Jesus transforms by dying at Calvary and resurrecting again. And it's not as if someday God's going to change his mind and go, remember what I said about the sword, forget that, let's pull it. In Revelation, when Jesus comes with a sword, and everybody loves to quote Revelation in the church going, Jesus is coming with a sword. But every time they talk about it, they have Jesus swinging the sword. But the book of Revelation does have Jesus with a sword. It's just never in his hand. Read Revelation. Read every chapter. It's never right here. You know what's right here? First two chapters, first three chapters. What's right here in his hand are the seven churches and the pastors of those churches. What's Jesus holding his hand? You. That's why Pastor Jamie said tonight, he didn't know he was setting up this last part of this sermon. No man can pluck you out of my hand. I'm not going to drop you 
to pick up the sword. I'm holding you in my hands. So where's the sword in Revelation? Coming out of his mouth. Why? Because the word of God is quick and true and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the very asunder of soul and spirit. Where does he do his work? In the soul and the spirit, not in the flesh. The sword's in his mouth because the victor, Jesus, says, the words that come out of my mouth will be the words that judge you. That's last night's sermon. It's the words that come out of my mouth that'll do it. Don't be a buster. Don't be a buster about God's grace. Tell God what's fair and who gets loved and who gets what. Don't be a buster. Don't be a buster about God's party. It's his party hats. It's his party favors. Put it on. Buster's got a wine and waller in the darkness. Don't be a buster about Jesus and his messiahship. He's not picking up swords and fighting the battles in the natural. He's going to win the battle from the word that proceeds out of his mouth. Don't be a buster because you're a friend. You are a true philos. You are what the Bible says Abraham was. This is why it's beautiful that the Bible says you're under Abraham's covenant. As many of you as are in Christ are in Abraham. You know what the Bible says about Abraham? Abraham was a friend of God. What word did he use? Buster? No. Promise. It wasn't buster. Abraham was bust, God's buster. No. Abraham was philos. Abraham was an intimate, close companion of God. Now, if you're in Abraham's covenant, what are you? You're the philos. You are the friend. Don't be a buster. Can those two things exist at the same time? Ask my dad. Ask my kids. Hey, you're my kid, but pull it in. You're my kid, stop the foolishness. Listen, if you keep doing the foolishness, you're going to keep being my kid. But because you're my kid, stop the foolishness. And I really think that's what the father says to us. You're my kid, and because you're my kid, you'll always be my kid. I don't care how stupid you act, you're mine. I've went to the ends of the, I'm not going to the ends of the earth for you. I've already went into hell for you. I've done everything. I've paid for you. You're mine. You're not going to run me off. No man plucks you out of my hand. But because you're my kid, cut it out. Cut it out. Clean it up. Fix it. Not so that you'll go, but because you're mine. Don't be a buster. Father, thank you tonight for the word. Thank you for this enjoyable experience of just looking into the word, seeing Jesus and watching it come alive with this vibrancy and this fire. If we've done anything tonight, Father, may it be we've put a spotlight on Jesus as the loveliness of the Father and we've made you look good and may we not in any way push against your grace, push against your party, push against your kingdom. I don't want to be a buster. I know I'm your friend, but every now and then, Father, I rear my head into the situation and I drone on about performance, fairness, and who should get into the party, and I really want you to pick up the sword once in a while, and if you won't, I want to. But, Father, I don't believe it's who I am born to be, and I don't think it's who this audience and those watching are born to be. Teach us what it means to be your philos, your friend. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said amen. Amen. Don't be a buster. Now you know what it means.
Love you. Appreciate you. Excited about being here this weekend. I hope, if nothing else, when you leave these meetings, you say, I haven't had as much excitement or joy hearing about Jesus or I love him more or I want to go read my Bible or something excites me about who I am in Christ, and that'd be the great compliment. If you need anything, got any products you want or want to ask us about something, we'll be back there. But we'll be back here tomorrow and excited about one more time together with you in the house of the Lord. Pastor Jamie, God bless you.